Well, good morning, everybody. Can I get a good morning back from you today? Yeah, it's a good, good day to be in church. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name is Tyler. I get to be the pastor here at Anastasis. And I said it a moment ago, but I'll say it again. I love what we get to do every single Sunday coming in this space, worshiping God. I do believe it with all my heart. There's not a better thing to do on a Sunday morning than to gather with God's people, celebrating who God is. We serve such a faithful and good God. And we serve a faithful and good God in another way, which is we have been in winter for a couple of months and we had no snow. And then we got some snow last Sunday, and I was so excited. If you were with us at church on Sunday, standing out in the lobby, we were over in the other space last week, looking out the windows, watching the snow fall, like I was a kid on Christmas. Like I remember every every winter growing up, I would look at the weather forecast like more than most people because I was just looking for the snow. Like I needed to find it. I wanted to be canceled from school. I wanted to play in the snow. And apparently my daughter has inherited that gene from me. Like she absolutely loves the snow. She's four years old. My son, Leo, he's not quite as sure about the snow. He's not quite yet too. He walked outside. I don't know how it happened, but it did happen. Something or someone put snow on his face. I have a pretty good idea of who that something or someone might've been potentially his four-year-old little sister. And he's walking around as we're playing in the snow on Sunday going, you know, like he's so upset. And he calls his blankie his kinky. And so he's like, I need my kinky. You know, so we, we get him his blankie, wipe his face off. He's all good. And my daughter is just like having a blast in the snow. And she says, hey, let's make a snowman. And I was like, well, it's not really the right kind of snow for a snowman. She's like, let's have a snowball fight. It's like, again, sweetheart, not actually the right kind of snow for a snowball fight. And trying to explain to a four-year-old how the snow that has fallen from the sky and is now on the ground is not the right kind of snow is a really interesting process. But she did not let the fact that we couldn't make a snowman and we couldn't make snowballs successfully on Sunday ruin her time outside. In fact, she's like, well, I can make snow angels. We're like, you can make snow angels. So she gets down on the ground. She makes those for, I'm not joking, like a half hour. Um, We're running around in the yard, and she just found ways to make the snow fun, even though, to be honest, the snow we got last week wasn't exactly the most fun snow, right? It was really thin. It was really dry. You couldn't form it. You couldn't do much with it. But her perspective was in the place of saying, I'm going to have fun. This is awesome. I got snow. And it doesn't matter. It's not the right kind of snow, Daddy says. It's, it's still snow. And I'm still going to have fun with it. And I'm going to put my perspective in the place of, well, I guess if life gives me lemons, I'll make lemonade, right? I guess if I'm de- whatever I'm dealing with, we'll just make the best of it. And I learn so much. I talk about my kids so much because I learn so much from just watching them. Because the situations that come their way, they just make the best of them. They just go on about their day. They don't let it alter and affect every part of their life. And I think about myself sometimes, and I think about how the smallest thing in my day can affect the ever larger parts of my life for that day sometimes because I get so concerned because my perspective is just not in the right spot. And I don't know if anybody else has ever been there where something small ruins something big for you. Something small distorts your viewpoint of your entire day or your entire week rather than just taking a deep breath and saying, you know what, it is what it is. This is what I have at hand and this is what's in front of me. And so I'm really grateful for my daughter who's four years old and my son who's almost two who are giving me a reminder daily that my perspective is really, really important, that my perspective is paramount. 
and that not everything that happens in my life needs to be a mountain. And the things that do happen, sometimes we can utilize those and turn those things for good. But more often than not, God's going to do that on our behalf. What the enemy intends for evil in your life, God will redeem for good. And so our perspective matters so much. And so we're going to continue our conversation today on perspective, fixing our eyes on Jesus. But before we do so, let's go ahead and let's pray together. Father, I thank you for who you are. Lord, I thank you that you are faithful to us. God, I thank you that you never leave us or forsake us. And Lord, that in every single moment, every single day, God, you're present. God, I thank you that you walk alongside us. God, that every situation that we're about to come up on, God, does not catch you by surprise in the least. And so, Lord, I pray over these moments that we share, God, that they would honor and glorify you. Whatever we're stressed out about, whatever we're worried about, whatever we're celebrating, whatever we're happy about, God, I pray that we would just give it all to you. We'd surrender it to you and we'd fix our vision on you and you alone. And God, I pray over the words that I'm about to speak. Father, I pray that they would be the ones you want spoken. God, omit the words you don't want spoken from my vocabulary today. God, I pray that I would honor and glorify you with what we share today and that your message is heard. I ask for all of this in Jesus' name. And everybody said... Amen. So I've been in ministry, been a pastor for like 12 years now. And when you go into ministry, um, people ask you questions that they don't just ask like their friends. It's a really, really interesting deal. And the main question that I get asked more than anything is, what do you feel like God has called you to do? And now if I'm being honest, like I really do think this is a question that we should actually be asking each other all the time, because I don't believe that calling is just reserved for those of us that God has said, hey, go and serve my church. Calling has been given to each and every person. When you were born, before you were born, when God was knitting you together in your mother's womb, as scripture says, he had a plan and a purpose for your life. Like he knew you and he knew he had a calling for your life. And so I do believe with all my heart that every single person in this room, not just pastors, but every single person in this room has a calling and a plan and a purpose for your life. But if we do want to get specific, I'll share with you what I do believe that God is either uniquely equipped, gifted, called, or given me a passion for. And that's this. I believe that God has called me to help people live lives of worship, to live their lives in a way that glorifies him and helps them experience the freedom that God has for them. You see, at the last church that I was working at, I had the, um, the privilege of, of pastoring at this really, really great church. And somebody came up to me and they said, hey, if God took away your ability to sing, because I was a worship pastor there. And he said, God took away your ability to sing. What would you do? Is there another like role at the church you'd want to do? And I remember saying to them, I said, man, if God took away my ability to sing, like, yeah, I, I would just pastor in a different area. And they're like, really? Why? And I said, because I think every role at our church is a worship pastor. And they were like, huh? Like they looked at me kind of puzzled, like, well, we don't all sing. And I was like, no, I get it. But, but the thing that we've made about with the word worship so often, and I think we've done a grave disservice to the word, is we've actually just assigned it to one aspect of something we do. We say like, hey, we worship God. And so often we think that means that we do this thing through music, that we worship God through singing. And I said, in fact, I believe that every pastor is a worship pastor, that we lead people, we help people live their lives in a way that honors and glorifies God. It's not just a Sunday thing, but we've created these buckets or these brackets in our services, right? We're like, this is the time that we stand and we sing. And this is, so this is the time that we worship. And then the next section is the time that we do teaching. And then we do giving and announcements. And, that, and it's all broken up into these buckets. And in reality, every single thing we do 
on a Sunday morning is worship to God. But worship doesn't just stop on Sundays. Worship is the orientation of our life, the way that we live our lives, our thoughts, our actions, the words that we say, the way that we spend our money, the integrity that we carry into in our workplace, the way that we honor our families, we love our wives or our husbands, or the way that we love our kids, the way that we talk to our friends and our family. Every single moment of our life is indicating something about worship. And the reality is we were created to worship. I believe that with all my heart. And so if you're wondering what it means to worship, worship is just the evidence of our adoration for something or for someone. And when I was thinking about this message series, this is my year, we've been talking about perspective a lot. And I can't help but be drawn back to the, to the notion that we need to understand that our lives were meant to be lives of worship, that we were in fact created to worship. We were created by God and for God to be in a relationship with him and to worship him. At the core of who we are and why we were created, it was by God and for God, to know God and to worship him. That's it. And so often we can overcomplicate our lives. So often we can think our lives are about so much more. When in reality, God has just called us all to worship him, to know him, to be in a relationship with him, to fix our eyes on him, but the reality is along the way, our sin has distorted what and how we worship. And like I said, the truth is the way that you work at your job or the integrity that you carry forward each day, it says something about God or it says something about what you worship. The way that you treat your wife, your husband, your family, your friends, your coworkers, the person at the grocery store is greeting you when you walk in the doors, the guy who cuts you off in traffic, the way in which we treat people and fix our eyes, the way that we spend our money. Are we generous? Do we give? Or are we selfish? Do we keep? Do we look at what we can acquire? Every little thing that we do says something about the condition of our hearts. And it says something about where our adoration is or where our worship is. And while we've talked a lot about putting God, you know, first in our day or going to him first in our pain, celebrating him first in our triumph, putting him first in our life, I do believe is an overarching discussion. It transcends every single boundary. And I believe that in order to put God first in our lives, that it has to affect every single aspect of our lives. To live a life of worship doesn't just mean that we believe in God or that we tell people we believe in God, but it actually means that every aspect of our life is in submission to God. Meaning he has the ability to alter it, to change it, to shape it, to use it however he wants to. That every aspect of our life is in submission to God. Meaning God, your will is more important than mine. Your desire is more important than mine. Where you want to focus is where I want to focus. What you desire is what I desire. And now listen, I understand this. There's not a single perfect person in the room, okay? None of us are perfect. If you are perfect, man, I, you're not. And so the reality is me, Hannah, Evan, Emily, any of us in the room, we've all got mistakes. We've all got failures. We've all got flaws. We've got things we're not proud of, right? Every single person in the room, none of us are perfect, but I do believe that there are things that we can do to proactively fix our eyes on God and to place our trust in him and live a life, not just a moment, but a life of worship. 
a life that extends beyond Sunday mornings, a life that extends beyond your favorite song, a life that extends beyond a sermon point that might be like, oh, that was really interesting, a life that extends to every moment, a life that extends to everything you do as we get our perspective right and we fix our eyes on God and place our trust in him. So with that in mind, we're going to go back to Matthew 6 again this week. I'm going to be reading out of the ESV if you want to follow along in your Bibles, if you have it or on your phone. If not, we'll have it on the screen behind me. And Jesus is giving the greatest sermon ever told. This is the Sermon on the Mount. And I always get nervous every time I preach out of this because it literally is the greatest sermon ever told. And here I am giving a sermon on the greatest sermon. I'm like, I don't know that that's going to work super well. But the reality is the words of Jesus are so important, right? We need to own them, we need to understand them, we need to read them, we need to meditate on them. And he is saying something here that is so powerful. He's just touched on the topic of money and being generous, and now he's talking about how to be generous. He's saying, hey, don't even let anybody know that you're being generous. Instead, give from a place of purity, remembering that your giving is between you and God, because your giving is actually an act of worship. Your giving is an act of worship. And he says this, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth. Don't look here at the stuff you can acquire where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, eternal treasures where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is saying is where you fix your attention, or specifically, Jesus is going to be talking about where your priority is in your material possessions or in your money, there your heart will be also. And where your heart is, is where you worship. Where your heart is, defines what you worship. The Bible says that out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. And worship is given from our words and from our actions, but it all flows out of our hearts. And Jesus is asking us to have an eternal perspective with everything that we do. To remember that we don't live for this life here on earth, but we live for the next one in eternity with God forever in perfect harmony with him. But our eyes need to be fixed on eternity. So he says in verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. He's saying where you put your attention and your focus matters. In fact, it's monumental. It is absolutely foundational where you fix your eyes matters so much. It's going to determine what emanates from you as you walk around. If you fix your eyes on God, if you fix your eyes on the things of eternity, when you walk around, light will emanate from you. His light. People will have a sense of who God is based on your presence, you just being around because of where your attention has been. Right? I, I remember having a conversation with somebody. My wife is absolutely incredible. Like she's like 19 million times better than me. Like that's not even an exaggeration. Like I don't even know there's a big enough number just to describe how amazing my wife is and how much more effective at literally everything she is. But I remember talking to somebody right when we started dating and they said, you know, it's crazy. You said you're starting to date Hannah. Like, I'm like, yeah, like good choice. And I'm like, yeah, like you can just tell she's been with Jesus. And I remember saying, like, okay. And they didn't say that about me, right? And I was like, okay, well, I guess I gotta fix something. But for them, they were like, you can just tell she's been with Jesus. When I see her, it's like 
she just radiates. And, I, and it's so true because I remember that period of our life. And Hannah was so devoted and still is to prayer and hearing the God of voice and see, hearing the voice of God and seeking God with all that she has. And so when people were around her, they were like, wow, I can tell that she's been with Jesus. But he says that if we don't put our perspective on him, we don't fix our focus on him. If we fix our focus on like our selfishness and what we can acquire, you're going to exude darkness and selfishness is going to emanate from you, right? He said the darkness is going to emanate from you, meaning glorifying yourself is going to emanate from you. And this is why we talk about our perspectives so much here, because where we fix our eyes or our attention says so much about the condition of our hearts or the disposition or orientation of our worship. Where we fix our eyes matters. If we say God is great, but we live like our life depends on us, or if we say God is generous, but we don't give, or if we say God is faithful, but we're not obedient to follow through on the things he asks us to do or what he asks us to give up, then what does our life say about what we believe about God or where our focus is? Or what does it say about who we're worshiping? And I just want to ask you that question. Sometimes we have a hard time deciphering between this, and it's who are we worshiping? If we're choosing to be disobedient, if we're choosing to run the opposite direction of God, who are we worshiping? Are we fixing our eyes on him or are we fixing our eyes on the world and on ourselves? Jesus says this in verse 24. He says, no one can serve two masters for he's either going to hate the one and love the other. Or he's going to be devoted to the one and despise the other. He's talking about stuff that's coming from your heart here, right? You cannot serve both God and money. So Jesus gets really specific here. He's pointing out something that's so important to a group of people that are not all that different from us. He is showing them that you cannot have anyone or anything before God. And I do believe the reason he uses money as the example is because from the beginning of time, temptation of money and possessions has been an issue for humanity. If you look at the story of Cain and Abel, if you know the story of Cain and Abel, you know where I'm going. If you don't know the story of Cain and Abel, let me break it down for you really, really quickly. Cain and Abel were Adam and Eve's sons. And Cain grew crops. That was kind of his job. That's what he did. And Abel had livestock. And it came time for them to present their offerings to the Lord. And Abel brought the best of his livestock to God. The best, the very best, the firstborn without spot, he brings to God. But Cain brought the leftovers of his crops, essentially. Like the stuff that he wasn't really that interested in. Nothing special about these crops. I'll give these ones to God. And when their offerings came to God, God had such regard and commended Abel's sacrifice because he brought his best. But God had no regard for Cain's offering because it wasn't his best. It was his afterthought. It was his leftover. It's what he decided he was willing to part with. Right? And Genesis 4, 6, and 7 says this. Cain's upset, and the Lord says to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, if you bring your best, if you do what you're supposed to do, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, if you don't bring your best, if you're not fixing your eyes on me, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. God is giving Cain a warning here, saying, Be obedient. Fix your eyes on me. Bring your best. Do not withhold. Trust me to supply. And this bothers Cain so much 
Cain wants the same respect that Abel got, right? Cain wants the same regard from God that Abel got, but he didn't bring the same sacrifice. So he's so upset, he's so angry, this bothers him so much that he kills his brother Abel out of jealousy. And it all started over possessions. One man was generous and honored God with his possessions. That's Abel, and God affirmed his sacrifice. The other one was stingy, and God had no regard for his sacrifice. So his greed led to sin that grew and grew into greater disobedience, ultimately resulting in the murder of his brother. And the reality is of this story, God warned him on the front end saying, Hey, Cain, get your perspective right. Sin is looking to come to you. Sin wants to own you. If you don't get your perspective right, it will control you, but you need to control it. Cain didn't get his perspective right. And what happens? It results in him murdering his brother. God recognizes that the wandering of our hearts can often happen through the temptation of money or possessions. It just really, really can. And that when our hearts wander or our eyes slip off of him, that's when we're susceptible to all different kinds of temptations and attacks from the enemy. So that's why Jesus continues on saying this in verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. It's like my verse for the year. Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body or what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they. Jesus is immediately attacking the core of many of their concerns, and that is their material possessions. And we talked about it last week, the importance of remembering how valuable we are to God, that we matter so much to God, that we are his children and that he loves us dearly and that our lives are worth so much more than our possessions, that our possessions don't dictate the value of our life, but God does. And what did God say our value was? Our life was as valuable as giving up his son. Right? He had his son sacrifice for us so that he could have us, so that we could be forgiven. And he decided that you were worth so much that he would give and give generously his son for you. So Jesus died so that you could have life and life more abundantly and life eternal. And he says this as he continues on. Jesus is talking, gives the greatest piece of advice ever right here. Verse 27 as we close. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Let that sink in for a second. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to your life? Is our worry helping us? Is our control making things better for our soul? Is the grip that we have on certain situations that we just need to let go of, is it making it better? Are we God? Can we extend our own life? The answer is no. But there is a God who cares deeply for you. So deeply for you. He cares about you more than you could ever ask, think, or imagine. I told you when he knitted you together in your mother's womb, he did so with a plan and a purpose. When he looks at you, he's elated. He finds joy in you. You were created for him. For him. To know him. To have a relationship with him. So for us, we have a God who cares so deeply for us, so we should put our eyes on him. 
Not on the things this world can offer. Not on our possessions. Not on what we can acquire. But on God and God alone. And so he continues on. And he's like, why are you anxious about clothing? And every time I read that, it's like a time machine. He needs to go back to 16 to 24-year-old Tyler. Be like, hey, dude, don't worry about your clothes. Not that big of a deal. Relax. Right? Why are you worried about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. And I hear Jesus' voice when I'm reading this now with desperation to his people saying, oh, you who does not understand the power and the might and the love of your father. Oh, you who does not understand how your father wishes to care for you and provide for you. Why are you worried about your clothes? Are you worried about your clothing because of what the Pharisees told you? Remember, we talked about last week, the Pharisees would dress and they'd have all these tassels hanging off their clothing, 613 of them, for all of the laws that they kept and for all the sins they didn't have, trying to show you how perfect they were. And he's saying, did they tell you your clothes mattered? Hey, check this out. You don't know it yet, but you're gonna find out that what I'm gonna do for you through my death and resurrection, I'm gonna clothe you in righteousness. I'm going to give you the best clothes that you could ever have. They're eternal clothes that are going to give you entrance into eternity. I'm going to clothe you in righteousness. There is nothing you can purchase, create, acquire, or have that will be better than what I want to give you. So don't fix your eyes on these earthly things. Don't put your perspective on the things that you can touch right here, but fix your eyes on me. And he says in verse 31, therefore, don't be anxious saying, what are we going to eat or what are we going to drink or what are we going to wear? For the Gentiles, those who don't know God, they seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But seek first. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek first God And all these things that you're concerned about are going to be added to you. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow's got enough worries for itself. Sufficient for the day, its own trouble. Don't be worried about your possessions, Jesus is saying. Don't fix your eyes on your finances, your provision, what you have in your bank account. God knows what you need. And he'll provide it. So instead, seek him. Seek his heart, not just his hand. Trust that he's got your best intentions at heart. Put your eyes on him. Put your perspective on God. Lock in. Remember, you cannot serve. Jesus says you can't serve both God and money. Your worry isn't helping you. And God is the provider of all you have anyway. Like we want to break this all down in like three quick words, right? Three quick phrases. You can't serve both God and money. Your worry is not helping you. And God's going to provide all that you have anyway. So just put your eyes on him. Not on what you need to acquire. So seek him first. In every aspect of your life, seek him first. And last week we talked about seeking God first by giving him the first of our day. Waking up before we check our phones, before we read the newspaper, before we watch the news. Check out something on television. We seek God first and we let his voice be the first voice that we seek. In the same way, Jesus is pointing to something really, really important. 
In the same way, with our finances and with our resources, we seek him first. And you may be hearing me say that and trying to figure out how to do that, wondering what on earth does that look like? The reality is God gave us a very, very, very clear path to worshiping him with our finances. The path to seeking him first in our finances is through tithing. Now, here's the deal. Tithing is specific. Tithing is not just giving. But the word tithe literally means tenth, meaning that we can worship God by giving him the first 10% of our income back to him, saying, God, I'll put you first in my financial life. And naturally, in our culture and in theirs, it's easy to make this whole topic just strictly about the money. And so many of us can find ourselves trapped in a place where we're just fixated on the money when the reality of the tithe is about our hearts. Jesus says, verse 24, right? No one can serve two masters for he's either gonna hate the one and love the other or he's gonna be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Meaning the conversation is about trust, not money. It's about our hearts. Look at those emotions there. You're either gonna hate the one or love the other. Your heart is gonna dictate what you feel about one or the other. You're either gonna be devoted to the one and despise the other. Your heart is gonna indicate where you are. So this topic that Jesus, is pointing to is not just about your possessions. It is about the condition of our hearts and the way that we worship or steward our money says something about the condition of our hearts. As Christians, we believe that everything we have, the roof over our head, the food on our table, the clothes on our back, the job that we get to work, the money in our bank account, whatever the case may be, we believe that it all comes from God. It all belongs to God and he gives it to us just to steward. And he asks us to steward it first by returning the tithe back to him. And this is something that, um, this is something that I wrestled with bringing this weekend. But I really felt like the Lord led me to teach on it. And you see, I did not want you to hear this as something that I want from you, but something rather that I really do want for you. Um, I believe with all my heart that tithing is a consistent piece that will lead you to freedom in this life. I believe that with all my heart. It's a piece of that process that God wants to use. Um, But I didn't always think that way. (laughs) I really didn't. I promise you with all my heart, I did not always think that way. In fact, for a portion of my life, I thought tithing was crazy. Like this idea that I would give 10% of my income or whatever I received back to God, like I thought that was crazy. I remember as a kid growing up, my parents would talk to me about it. My church would talk to me about it. My grandma would give me $50 for like Christmas or my birthday. And it would be like, I got to get five. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Like, no, 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 no. That don't make any sense. Why? And they're like, well, it's worship. And I'm like, uh-huh. Okay. And then I remember I got my first job and I was a waiter down at Bob Evans on Harding Highway. Spent most of my Fridays, Monday nights and Wednesday nights there, Saturday mornings, I was the opening bus boy, and then I was a waiter in the evening. Listen, I was a mean bus boy. Um, just kidding. Um, no, the reality is I remember getting my first paycheck and, and even a sequence of paychecks at 16 years old and going, it just, just doesn't make sense to me. Like the idea of tithing makes no sense to me. Give 10%. Like I worked pretty hard for this money. I'm only making like $6.25 an hour. I shouldn't even think it was that much. It was like five fifteen. Um, like 5.15 an hour. Like I, I, what do you, like, I don't know. What do you want me to do with this? And then I remember it felt like a burden to me. 
But it wasn't until I looked at tithing actually through the lens of the character of God that it clicked and it made sense. You see, first, God is holy. He just is holy. He's perfect. He's righteous. He is holy. What he says is right. And he asks us to return the tithe back to him out of what he has given us to steward. And it clicked with me one day that by not returning the tithe back to God, I was withholding from God what was rightfully his. He's holy. And by not returning it, I was keeping what belongs to him. Um, If you loan your neighbor your lawnmower and you say, hey, man, you can use this for a little bit, but I'm going to need it back. And then you go and you knock on his door and you're trying to get it back. He just like ignores you. And he never gives you your lawnmower back. He's keeping what's rightfully yours. In the same way, when we don't return the full tithe, we're doing the same thing to God. So the most baseline piece of tithing is that we're returning back to God what's rightfully his. But the more that I examine this through his character, I saw the other layers to it. You see, I see that love's exhibited through him asking us to do this. Because when we tithe, God is giving us a tangible way to get our perspective right. He's helping sinful, fallen people gain a holy perspective. And this is so important. By tithing first, before we have the opportunity to run out of money, to spend frivolously, we get to place our trust in him because the tithe is not just a tenth of our income. It is the first tenth. It is the first thing we give to God. And we say, God, above all else, above all my other expenses, above all my other wants and needs, I'm actually fixing my eyes on you first. And I'm able to do this in a tangible way. Tithing helps us proactively place our trust in God. The next thing it showed me is that it actually gives God the opportunity to bless us. Check this out. Malachi 3.10. God's talking and he says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will be no, there will not be room enough to store it. The reality is God wants to bless you. And this is the only spot in scripture where God says, test me. This is the only spot in scripture where God says, it's okay, you can test me. And while I'm not saying, and I'm not promising that if you tithe, you're going to get a new car and like a better house and a better job, and you're going to gain this constant financial return. I don't believe that. What I do believe with all my heart is that your needs will be met, that peace will abound in your heart, and that because of your faithfulness to God, you will experience the supernatural faithfulness of him. And I say that from experience. Um, More times than I can count, God has provided. I was having a conversation with a couple of people this week. And um, many of you don't know all of our story, but when Hannah and I felt the call to go to Oklahoma and be a part of a church to pastor out there, we we felt God say, this is where you're called before we knew what the salary was going to be. And I remember um, knowing the answer was yes, and then having a conversation with the guy before we flew to have the interview and he said, hey, just so you're, you're aware, this is what we pay and this is what it pays. And it was like a 50% pay cut. And I remember going, oh my God, <laughs> like 50%, how are we gonna make it? And I remember God just saying, be obedient, trust me, do it. So Hannah and I did this and we moved out there and there were time and time and time again that like, I'm not lying to you when I say, we had like six bucks to our name. If something would happen, is somehow God would provide. 
And I just remember just experiencing this faithfulness of God that just was unmatched. And it didn't make sense and I didn't understand it. It was, the reality was Hannah and I, even in those moments of knowing like we are at the skin of our teeth to survive right now. We knew we were still supposed to honor God by putting him first in our finances, returning the tithe. And as difficult as it was sometimes, because it's like, oh, we really could use that. We recognized that fixing our eyes on him was better than placing our trust in ourselves. And so more times than I can count, I've seen the provision in the hand of God work in a way when there was no way. I promise you that. And the last thing that I want to articulate to you this morning is this, that when we give, our hearts become more like God's. I talked to you about it before, but let's read this out loud together. Can I have everyone's help on this one? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he, help me out, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. He gave right? He gave, he gave generously. He gave his son so that we could have life. So when we give back to God, we're allowing our hearts to look more like his. When we give back to God, we're returning the tithe back to him. We're honoring him by giving back to him what belongs to him. We're placing our trust in him to be our provider. We're giving him the opportunity to bless us and we're allowing our hearts to become more like his. So as Christians, you seek to live a life of worship. And you do so in every area as you seek first the kingdom of God. With our attention, with our focus, with our prayer, with our attitudes, with the grace that we steward, with our finances, with the way that we serve, the way that we love. We seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And we allow everything else that we need to be added to us. Our perspective our eyes are on Jesus in every aspect. Let's pray together.